0: Hey,
1: it's Rebecca, and before we get into this week's episode, I wanted to share with you some news. Uh, Coming out tomorrow, January 23rd, my new six-part podcast, The Dropout, launches. It is an unbelievable tale about Elizabeth Holmes. She was once the world's youngest self-made female billionaire. She is now facing criminal charges. She's pleaded not guilty and up to 20 years in jail. This is a stunning fall from grace. It's a story that I have found to be one of the most interesting that I've covered over the course of my career. And I'm very excited to share this three-year-long investigation with you. A lot of you know Taylor Dunn, my producer here at No Limits. She also worked with me on The Dropout, as well as Victoria Thompson, another producer here at ABC News. And we have been working around the clock to bring this to you. So be sure to subscribe, rate, and review The Dropout. It comes out tomorrow, January 23rd, but you can go take a look at it today because the trailer is already out. Okay, here's this week's No Limits episode. I think I was
2: really self-deprecating for a long time and more self-effacing than I needed to be about the fact that I had not gone to the traditional college and gotten the Harvard MBA and done the thing exactly that everyone else had. And then at some point I realized probably 10 years into my 24-year career. Actually, I'm doing well here, and I need to be good with this. I need to stop talking about the fact that I did this funky thing mm-hmm. and started into it when I was 19. I cannot let this be a thing for me. I have mm. to let my work stand
1: for itself. From ABC, it's No Limits. I'm Rebecca Jarvis, and each week we're talking to the most bold and influential women playing at the top of their game, trying to demystify success and what it really takes to get there and all the trade-offs. Whether you're looking for answers or you just want to hear a good story, you're in the right place. On today's episode, you're about to meet Shannon Brayton. She is the chief marketing officer of LinkedIn and one of the top chief marketing officers in the country. She grew up in Silicon Valley and decided after her first internship at Intuit that she didn't wanna go back to college in the traditional sense. Instead, she kept working and going to night school. And in her early 20s, she was riding the wave of the early internet success from Yahoo to eBay, and eventually found herself dealing with the realities of the dot-com burst. Shannon had a front row seat to all of this, and she's been navigating the tech world now for more than 20 years. In this episode, she shares some of the best tips and lessons that she's learned, sometimes the hard way, as she's gone from those early internships now to the C-suite. And of course, she gives us tips on how to amplify that LinkedIn profile so that employers will find you so that you can find the best jobs and the best opportunities. Here's Shannon Brayton. Shannon Brayton, welcome to No Limits. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so happy to have you here. And for our listeners, Shannon and I go way back. I have to say there are a lot of people out in Silicon Valley that you get to know over the years covering technology as a business correspondent. And um, Shannon was one of the, and is still, one of the most thoughtful and kind. And I would say you've you've offered me really mentoring advice over the years, so thank you for that. That's so kind, thank you. You're Uh, easy to mentor. Please. Well, there's a lot to get to uh, about your background, about LinkedIn, the CMO role at LinkedIn. You are a top CMO in the country. Forbes has actually put this on the record, just FYI. And you are one of the most senior women in Silicon Valley, which, by the way, I hate saying that because it's like you're one of the most senior people in Silicon Valley. It doesn't have to be. We don't need to say women, but you are. You're one of the top. So let's talk about your backstory, okay?
2: Okay, I have a very untraditional backstory, so this will be fun.
1: Exactly. So one of the interesting things is a lot of people don't necessarily grow up in Silicon Valley in that area, but you did. You saw it as a kid. I did. Um,
2: I completely saw it as a kid in a very different way than when I actually started. I was 19 years old, and I got a job at Intuit as a temp And I was essentially supposed to spend a summer there and completely fell in love with it and decided I never wanted to leave. And that's been 24 years. What did you love about
1: the internship?
2: Well, it really wasn't an internship. I was making $28,000 a year, which I thought was incredible. Yes. I was an assistant to somebody and I was in charge of planning events. And I thought it was the most fun thing ever that I got to plan parties and make a little money on the side. I also learned how to do email
0: for the first time. (laughs) What
2: year was this? This was 1994, September 1994. And I had a cell phone, which was really cool. That was a really new thing back then. I'm sure everybody
1: around you thought that was really cool, too. All my
2: friends couldn't believe, oh, my God, you have a cell phone for work? I mean, it was like, wow.
1: That's very Wall Street of you.
2: It was very Wall Street of me, even though I didn't really know it at the time. I was obviously under 21, so I was not able to drink at the company Christmas party. (laughs) And it was one of those classic stories where, ironically, because Microsoft has since acquired LinkedIn over the last two years, but Microsoft tried to buy into it while I was there. And Bill Gates came to the campus, and I saw Bill Gates in person and thought to myself, I have to work in the Valley. This has to happen for me. So I went home and told my mom I was not going to be returning to college.
1: And what did she say?
2: She always sort of knew I was someone that was hard to talk out of once I had made a decision and I was really resolute that this was the right call for me but she was a little bit horrified at the same time that I wasn't gonna to return to school and follow the traditional path. So there I was and I told it, I'm gonna stay and then I ended up getting a full-time job there and I stayed for four years. Best place I ever could have possibly cut my teeth when it comes to the Valley.
1: Was there ever in your mind a concern about leaving college? Oh, absolutely. And I still have a bit of a chip on my shoulder about it. I ended
2: up going to school at a college called it's they have since changed the name, which is why I'm hesitating. It was called the College of Notre Dame. It is not the University of Notre Dame. And it is now called Notre Dame de Namur University. And it's local in on the peninsula in California. It's a tiny little school. And I went at night for four years. So I would work all day and then go to school at night. And sometimes I would drive back to the office and finish up my work and drive home at midnight. That was literally my life for three of those four years. You're a hustler. I was a bit of a hustler, yes. And I think about it now. I would sit literally in my psychology class and write my to-do list for the next day at work, and really wasn't paying attention the way I should have.
1: Well, I would sit in, I didn't take psychology, but I would sit in most of my classes and think about what I was having for lunch. So even better. I'm sure I did a little bit <laughs> of that like, too. I think the cafeteria has um, <laughs> stir fry today. i love that. I, I love it. So
2: that was, it's a very untraditional path. So when you sit in a Silicon Valley table, and you are typically one of the only women, yes. and maybe the only person without a Harvard MBA Over time, that can become a little bit of a barrier. And at some point, I realized I cannot let this be a thing for me. I have Mm. to let my work stand for itself. And that took me a couple years to really understand.
1: Did that shape at all how you presented yourself? Did you change in any way how you presented yourself?
2: I think I was really self-deprecating for a long time and more self-effacing than I needed to be about the fact that I had not gone to the traditional college and had the sorority experience and had gotten the Harvard MBA and done the thing exactly that everyone else had. And then at some point I realized probably 10 years into my 24 year career, actually I'm doing well here and I need to be good with this. I need to stop talking about the fact that I did this funky thing Mm -hmm. and started out into it when I was 19.
1: So was there a turning point at the 10-year mark that made you realize it or was just kind of a gradual learning over time?
2: I think it was more gradual than anything where I realized I'm sitting around these tables with really smart people. I'm adding value. I need to be okay with that and stop excusing it or making it seem not as important because I didn't go to
1: Yale. Mm -hmm. Totally. Well, I totally respect that. So, okay, you're adding to it. Four years in, you make a decision to leave.
2: I do. I make a decision that I'm going to go to Yahoo which very few people had ever heard of the company. In fact, my mother, I remember, said to me, the chocolate drink company, she thought Yahoo <laughs> was Yahoo. So this was in 1998. It was a really hard decision because I actually, Yahoo Finance essentially competed with the product I worked on at Intuit. And I didn't really understand how wrong that was to leave, to go to a competitor, and I really burned a few bridges along mm. the way by doing that. And that's something I really hold dear now as a lesson about the importance of being really clear and also making choices that don't hurt the people that hired you and you worked with in the past.
1: That's a, such a good point. So were you recruited by them because of the fact that you were adding to it in the group that you were in? Yes. And they but, saw that it's sort of like poaching you.
2: Correct, but I'm 23 and I'm thinking, oh, I can make $35,000 now. I'm definitely gonna take this job. But I didn't really realize the implications of it. And so I regret that a little bit. Would I, you have
1: stayed at Intuit knowing that, or would you have just framed it differently?
2: No, I was having a really hard time at Intuit with the person who had come in to run our department, and so I knew it was really time for me to go. I always give this advice when people ask me. I was crying in the bathroom. It's the only time I've ever cried at work at Intuit, and I realized I you can't be crying at work. I have to leave this job. This is obviously not the right place for me if I'm in a bathroom hiding my feet on the toilet seat balling into a big wad of Kleenex. So once you cry at work, you potentially know you're not in the right spot. And Mm -hmm. I really knew that from a gut level that it was time to go. Having said that, I wish I had handled it a little bit better in terms of going to a competitor.
1: So you get to Yahoo!, was it a smooth transition from there? Were you happy right away? Were you questioning the decision? I was happy right away. I mean, Yahoo was the internet back then. I tell
2: all my employees that now, especially my millennials employees who didn't <laughs> even know Yahoo was cool when back then. People thought it was the internet. I would get on an airplane with a Yahoo sticker and people would say, oh, you work at the internet? People didn't understand that Yahoo was this highway to everything. And so it was so much It's the best job I've ever had. I always say that. I have friends. I just got together last Monday night with 12 friends. We all worked together there 20 years ago. So it was such a formative experience. And we were really, quote unquote, Valley speak, but we were changing the world. And I knew we were onto something. It was really, really fun. And I watched the company go from a stock price of 30 to 500 and back down to eight. So riding that wave and learning early on that things don't always stay stable was a really great lesson for me, too.
1: That is such an important lesson. And especially when people are going into startups, you know, oftentimes there's stock and things like that involved in your compensation package. And you really have to think about the fact that it, it, it might not be an absolute. So what are you getting out of this beyond just potential real huge upside compensation-wise.
2: Absolutely. When I have people tell me, oh, I think I'm going to go to a startup, I see dollar signs in their eyes immediately. But I always tell people so many things have to go right for an IPO to be successful. First of all, to even get to the point where you can have an IPO. Then have it be successful. Then have it increase. Then have it sustain. It's really, really challenging. And I was really lucky at Yahoo that I was able to watch this and have the stability of the company and understand that it's paper money and it doesn't necessarily translate into real dollars and have that lesson and watch the people's
1: personalities and things change when stocks are really volatile like that. That is a very, very good point because when all of a sudden I mean, and this happened this does happen where you have basically overnight millionaires inside of companies. And oftentimes, especially today You had a lot of them. And I tell tell us a little bit about that. Like what how does that manifest itself?
2: It's very strange, especially because most people at Yahoo were under 30, I would right. say. So I was going to say young. You're a really young population, and all of a sudden, you have all this money. And for me, one of the things that I found really challenging is, you know, I had friends, remember, my age at that point. I had friends that were literally a senior in college, and here I am with this really sizable pot of yes. money. And I decide, oh, I'm going to buy a loft in San Francisco because that's what people do when they get money. We all took trips, we did all the cheesy Silicon Valley things that you see on the Silicon Valley show. It was pre-Instagram HBO. though, so you didn't get <laughs> That's right. There was no one to tell really except the people around you. There was no one to show off to. But it was really an interesting time to figure out, oh, financial advisors are reaching out to me. It's a really weird thing to go from what I said earlier, making $35,000 a year and really being excited about that. And then all of a sudden having a very different situation and just having the bill come and nobody reaches for it because they assume you're going to pay. So that was a big adjustment for me, especially having grown up, not really having a lot of money.
1: And in a social situation in particular. So you mentioned your other friends outside of the world of Silicon Valley. They're still in college. They're looking to you for this.
2: Absolutely. And here I am with my cell phone and my Seven Habits of Highly Effective People book that I'm reading. (laughs) And I have a loft. I mean, it was really a weird, weird time, but it was really important to me that I always remained humble while I was going along the journey. Now, of course, there were some heady moments as well. You know, you're sitting at a table with a couple of billionaires pretty often. And there were some heady times for sure, H e a d y. but it was important that I always stuck to my roots that was really really key to me that I didn't change as a person as a result of the financial events
1: were your parents in the background enforcing any of this for you no
2: no they had no idea they didn't even know what stock options were I mean I my mom was a single mother raised my brother and I and we lived really paycheck to paycheck they had no clue what was going on over on my side and frankly neither did I And that loft that I bought, I got a ton of advice not to do it, and I did it anyway. And, of course, the market tanked in 2001 when the dot-com first bust happened, and I couldn't pay for the loft, and I had to sell it at a loss. So I was really arrogant as well about not getting a lot of advice from people and just thinking, oh, no, this is a really cool loft. I've got to go buy it. It was a really tough lesson.
1: That is incredible. I'm glad you shared that with us. Okay, so 2001 bubble bursts, you're selling your loft. What's going through your head professionally at this time? Do you think, "Oh, Silicon Valley is dead," or "Oh, there's another company out there that's going to be my next opportunity?"
2: Well, as I mentioned, I didn't um really learn the lesson about not going to a competitor right away because I left Yahoo to go to eBay, which Yahoo had an auction business that was competing with eBay. So I had been interviewing there, and unfortunately, September 11th happened during the time that I was interviewing, so everything got postponed. But toward the end of September, I end up resigning at Yahoo, and they made me leave that day. I was walked out of the building because I was going to a competitor.
1: With security?
2: It was not with security, but they basically had me pack my cube, and
1: off I went. Did you expect that when you walked in to tell them what you were doing?
2: No, I didn't. I didn't really get it. So... I would say in general, I'm a quick learner on the (laughs) don't go to a competitor and expect people to be excited. Took me a little longer to learn.
1: I do think, to your point, I do think that it can be confusing and maybe this is not the case with you. But I think that people often mistake closeness at work and strong relationships with superiors and senior people as being like your actual friends and it's not to say that you're not friends but that relationship is predicated on the the terms of the relationship the fact that you essentially work for them and when that changes and I've I've had things like this happen come up in my career especially when I was junior and I would make a decision to move on all of a sudden that person who rightly or wrongly thinks they made you is now kind of like, wow, so you're going to bite the hand that feeds you.
2: Yeah, I think it can be seen as a disloyal move. Right. When really, from my perspective, I was not really enjoying my last six months at Yahoo and wanted to move on, and I had more earning potential going to eBay. So I made this calculation, but I did not take into account I'm really going to alienate a few people along the way. Or does it really matter? And of course, what I've come to learn is how important it is not to burn bridges over time. Yes. But sometimes it takes a little longer to learn the lesson.
1: Well, I agree with you about not burning bridges. But at the same time, if the major value in someone's mind about you is your loyalty you you have to be loyal to yourself as well. Absolutely. And I, I'm not saying to be flagrant with it and to just say, well, throw caution to the wind, I'm going to move around. But I also think that there's sort of the opposite side of things, which you don't suffer from or did not suffer from. But there is that opposite side of I'm so beholden to this, I can never perceive or contemplate or pursue anything outside.
2: Yes, and that is not the right calculus either. The interesting thing is I see men make a much more hard-charging decision to just go for it and it really doesn't yep. matter, where women are much more careful and, oh, I shouldn't be doing this, et cetera. So, yes, there's a bit of a double standard there in what I said, too. But about- I get it.
1: I mean, look, I think it it can play out both ways. Yeah. Both things can be both harmful or positive. And I also think that when you look back in retrospect, you say, look, I would have changed it. I would have done a few things differently, but that doesn't mean that you would have stayed at Intuit for the rest of your life. Yes, exactly. You eventually ended up at LinkedIn, but in between eBay and LinkedIn, there's OpenTable.
2: I did go to OpenTable for two years. Yep.
1: And any thoughts on that? I mean, that was one of your shorter stints, I guess.
2: It is the shortest stint I've had. It was only two years, and I loved every minute of that job. It was absolutely wonderful at eBay, and I'd had a team of about 100 people, had had a very intense job there, and I went to OpenTable and took an individual contributor role and didn't have anybody on my team. And You were really, running comms for them. I was running comms and investor relations, yes, prior to the IPO. So I went to OpenTable really so that I could get the IPO experience. But it was a bit of an ego hit, too, to go from a vice president at a public company with a big team to an individual contributor role where I was labeled a senior director and had a budget, you know, a tenth of the size that I had had at eBay, probably even more. So it was a big thing I really had to process in my mind. Is this the right thing for me to do from a career perspective? And is this really about your ego or is this about what kind of experience you can go get? So it was a shorter stint. I got married during that time. I also had a baby during that time. And when I came back from maternity leave, I realized I had another eBay-like idea in my head about what I wanted to go build. And so that's how I ended up at LinkedIn.
1: I want to go there in one second. But this point that you just made, I think, is a very valuable one about the trade. Because usually when you're switching jobs, especially as you get more senior, it's not as clear cut. You're not necessarily going to another place where everything at that other place appears to be better right. than Absolutely. your prior. I mean, for the most part throughout the career, there's always going to be trade-offs when you make these moves. But you raise a really interesting point. So walk us through how you would think through a move like that, where you're going from a, a relatively, you you get more seniority, but it's a younger company, and fewer resources. So there's going to be some difficulty in that.
2: I tell people when people ask me when they struggle with things like this, nobody likes to take a step backwards, but sometimes you have to take a step backwards to go two steps forward. And in my case, that really made sense because I wanted to have worked on an IPO and OpenTable had that plan to eventually go public. The irony of that is the day that we had the kickoff meeting for the IPO is the day that Lehman Brothers filed for bankruptcy. So it was, I think, September fifteenth, two thousand eight. Yeah, and we were in the meeting. I'm <laughs> I sure, think I'm
1: sure many of I you. I was remember standing it outside fondly. of Lehman Brothers that day. Yeah, of
2: course you were. We were all in our meetings. Now we had cell phones at this point, and the alert comes through that Lehman Brothers had filed for bankruptcy. So I, of course, am sitting there thinking, "Oh my God! I left this big job for this tiny job." to do the IPO and now it's not going to happen. But the company did an incredible job and the bankers did an incredible job getting the company out. And so I was able to get the IPO experience that I had really gone there for. Plus it was a great time to think about getting married, having a baby. It was not a very stressful job. And so it was a very great way for me to gain the experience and have a bit of a life at the same time. So the IPO experience is really the reason that I went there, but it was a big step back. And so when you make those decisions, you have to really run that calculus is this one step backwards, but eventually it'll allow me to take two steps forward. And not every career is lateral, you know, or not lateral, but not every career is vertical. Right. Sometimes it is lateral. Right. And that's actually a great thing for a lot of people.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Well, and I think it's in some ways, these types of questions are synonymous with the very things that a founder goes through the idea that there's imperfect information in front of you and you have to life doesn't, for the most part, present you with perfect information.
2: Hardly ever. And the open table role was one that I really based on gut as well, because I really liked the person that I would have been reporting to. And the CEO was someone I worked with at eBay. So some of it is just that connection that you have with people and the vibe that you get when you walk into a place and decide this is a place I really want to be. And that's how I felt there. So some of that imperfect information gets filled in with intuition and gut, which I think a lot of us are really good at having after having so many years of work experience.
1: So you you make it to LinkedIn. Hear more from Shannon Brayton after a quick word from our sponsor.
0: When it comes to hiring, you don't have time to waste. You need help getting to your shortlist of qualified candidates fast. That's why you need Indeed.com. Get started today at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast.
1: Was LinkedIn recruiting you, by the way, throughout the time that you were at OpenTable, or was that, so you make it to LinkedIn, you did, was LinkedIn recruiting you, by the way, throughout the time that you were at OpenTable, or was that... So I started at
2: LinkedIn in 2010, and I have an email that I saved in my Yahoo Mail. In 2008, they reached out to me for a role there, and I turned it down because I just started OpenTable and didn't feel like that was fair. But I ended up there two years later. So yes, we had had many conversations over the two years about me joining the company.
1: So you go there. You are the VP of comms. Mm-hmm. The company is really up and coming at that point. Yeah. I mean it's 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 been around for a while at that point. Yeah. What was your first impression of the company?
2: My first impression was that it was pretty young for being as old of a startup as it was, young in terms of maturity of experience. The CEO of LinkedIn at that time is still the CEO now, and he was really the reason I went there because of the Jeff connection. Wiener. Jeff Wiener, yes. So the connection that we had and what I knew he wanted to build. But there were lots of challenges inside of the company as we were thinking about what it would take to eventually go public as well.
1: And one of the things that I I, I wanted to talk to you about today was the idea that you started out in this role, and then you added the CMO role Um, Was that something in your mind? Before you got to LinkedIn, was it in your mind that you wanted to do more than run comms at LinkedIn?
2: Never. Really? Never. In fact, Jeff had offered me many times to think about the CMO job, and I absolutely said, no, I'm not interested. And why? I always like to tell the joke that I, I had been around marketing my entire career in the Valley, but I really didn't understand marketing. I didn't totally get it. I didn't always gel with marketers, and I just didn't think it was going to be a fit both ways, for the team or for me. And ultimately, was it really right for the company for me to be in charge of marketing? And I said no for a really long time.
1: What did you not like about marketing on the surface?
2: It's really funny. It's a very classic communications slash PR people and what they think about marketers and vice versa. So comms and PR people tend to think marketers are too slow because they need data. And in terms of imperfect information, they don't like to make decisions without it. And we're really analytical and just move slowly. And marketing people think comms people don't need data and just always shoot from the hip. And so there's this inherent conflict between the two roles. That was one of my other concerns was how am I going to bridge the divide between these two teams and how am I ever going to be seen as a marketer since everyone here knows me as a comms person? So I really struggled with, is this the right thing for me and is it right for the
1: team? And what was the turning point where you decided it should be?
2: So Jeff ended up asking me to do the job on an interim basis, and so I did it for about eight weeks, and I really started to like it and felt like I could have impact. So the eight-week interim has turned into nearly three and a half years in that role. I felt excited about, wow, I'm actually learning a lot. I didn't know that I was bored because I was so busy. You know, Mm. I think sometimes when you're really busy, you can't imagine when someone says, oh, you're bored. It turns out I had so much to learn, I was actually a little bored. I didn't know it because I was so crazed with my schedule, but I wasn't growing and I wasn't learning a lot. I'd basically been doing the same job for 20 years.
1: Yeah, because that's really where you started. You've been in comms PR the whole way along. Yeah. that's Well, I think that's an interesting point for a lot of us as we think about how we spend our time, because being busy is different than being entertained, feeling curious,
2: it's very true.
1: Okay, so you're in the com uh, you're in the comms role, you're in the marketing role, and something that I think a lot of people are oftentimes curious about with LinkedIn is how they make their LinkedIn profile stand out. What's the biggest mistake you think people do with their LinkedIn profiles?
2: The number one is not including a picture.
1: Which is so simple. It seems so basic. But it's so overwhelming at the same time. It's
2: overwhelming, I think, when it comes to LinkedIn. Because I don't think mine had a picture
1: for a long time, by the way.
2: But it does now. Yeah, A great picture. Thank you for that. I think it's
1: my headshot.
2: That's great. That's that's great because you had those to add. But the amount of people that will say to me, well, I haven't had a picture yet done for LinkedIn because I need to lose 10 pounds or I had to have my makeup done or I needed a better haircut or... People have all kinds of excuses because it's tied to your professional career. Yes. Where on Facebook, you put a picture of you and your dog and you're off to the races. So I think people put a lot more thought and effort into what their LinkedIn picture should be, and then they don't end up putting one at all. And we know that profiles and your whole experience on LinkedIn is a million times better when you actually have a face associated with it. So that is the number one, and it's so basic, it's very easy to fix.
1: In in the chief marketing officer job, what are the primary functions? How do you spend most of your time?
2: I definitely spend most of my time with the team. So the team is almost 600 people at this point. And so it's really a lot of talent-related things that I do. I do lots of one-on-ones with my own team. I do lots of meetings with HR. We are constantly figuring out how do we make the new hires feel good How do we make sure this person doesn't leave? How do we make sure this person grows in their career? How do you make sure
1: someone doesn't leave?
2: You don't, I think. I think it is important that people have a career path. They feel like they're well compensated and they have some type of mentor or coach in the organization that's helping them. If they have those three things, I think they tend to want to stay at a company. We offer an amazing culture, so I think people mostly stay because of that. But when someone's really set on leaving, it's really hard to try to keep someone. Mm-hmm. That's what I've learned over the years. When someone has ideas about, well, I can make more money at this company or I can have a way bigger job, I it's really hard to talk
1: someone out of it. And when you think about hiring, because you oversee and manage so many people and especially, it's an interesting, I'm thinking about this in the context of LinkedIn, because LinkedIn, you know, people see your pedigree. They see your skills. They see your experience. They see who you know. Exactly. Who you know. And that's an interesting component, too, because who you know is a little, in my opinion, it's a little bit different than what you've done and what you've experienced. It might be indicative more, especially your connections, of who that person is. Absolutely. How do you, where does it break for you in your mind between experience versus finding the right fit, culture, loyalty, looking for those things like integrity in a, in a, in another person.
2: So all of those things come from the network piece of it. You obviously can do a lot of back-channeling on people because you know who they know. So when you go on LinkedIn and it says, you and Rebecca have these 20 people in common, if I were interviewing you for a job, I would know, I would talk to you, obviously. I would know all your experience. I would know what you do. I'd call the three people you told me to call, and then I'd call the four people that weren't on your list that we share in common and find out more of the softer skills, high integrity, um, can they make decisions under pressure, all of those things that are really hard to test for in an interview, you can get from the people who they've worked with before. So that is why the network, I think, has been so enormously helpful, is making sure that you're making the right calls. And these are people that typically either have worked with you or know you socially. And I always clarify, too, when people call me, I know this person socially. They're fantastic. I've never worked with them. Yes. It's really important to yes. caveat what context you know people to so you don't get down the path of this person's amazing and then they show up there and they're not. Yes. But you didn't know that because you only know them from parties.
1: So important. How are people who are using LinkedIn the best using it? Um, I would
2: say the people that I enjoy the most are the ones that share the vulnerable stories. I think to your question about how we spend a lot of our time. We think a lot about the brand. I think for a long time, LinkedIn for people stood for success and achievement and getting ahead. And what we've really realized is lots of people actually want to get on there because they want to get smarter. They don't necessarily want to be hit with here are the 10 things CEOs eat for breakfast. And here is what Richard Branson says about how he hires and why it's the only way it can be done. What I'm finding is the people who are sharing stories about getting fired, having to negotiate really hard for a salary, recovering from a sexual harassment situation. Those are the stories I think are doing the best on the platform now. The people who are vulnerable and sharing stories that most of
1: us can relate to. And when you've had to negotiate, because there have been a number of moves along the way, how do you approach these?
2: I find that being direct is the best way to do it. So do you come
1: in with a number in the beginning?
2: I usually have a number in my head. Yes, I do. And I think in my early career, I was just happy to get a paycheck. I drove out of the parking lot every day thinking, thank God I wasn't fired today. I didn't even understand how to negotiate. And when I would get a raise or something associated with a promotion or a bonus or whatever, I was just glad that it happened. But as you get more senior, you realize you actually do need to negotiate and you can't just accept things at face value. So being direct but being respectful is also important. And I say that to men and to women, not just to women. The one thing I used to do very, very poorly when I first decided I needed to become a negotiator was I filled the space with lots and lots of words about why I thought I needed more money instead of just saying, so this is my market value. This is what I'm hoping to make. And I would love to talk to you about why you don't think that's appropriate or why you think it is appropriate, depending on the context. So being really direct. But making sure you're respectful along the way and not being demanding also is important, not because that's what women shouldn't do, but because I think it leaves people with a bad taste in their mouth about the conversation.
1: Yes, which there's so much nuance here. I mean, I think once you're in the room, it it can always change. But the idea of putting a period on it, I'm not good at that or I work to be better at that every day. And I think in particular in negotiations, that's really key. Go in with your, you know, three or four primary points
0: and then be compensation
1: role and a few reasons why you've earned that and what you're helping the company do and then stop. That's right. So what do you do if you're basically confronted with you're you're crazy? This isn't you know what you're asking for is way out of whack with where the market is right now or what we can do. This is where I think it's really important
2: to have data. So when I talked about market value, you can't go into that conversation having no idea how you compare to other people in your field. You have to have some idea. We use something at LinkedIn called Radford data to tell you what your benchmark is. But really, it's having the story clear in your mind about what your market value really is because of what you know from other sources.
1: It can't just be oh I think I should make X. Of course, never use your personal life or your personal situation as the reason that someone should be paying you something. Absolutely, the entire reason that you're you're every part of that negotiation should focus on the value that you're bringing to the organization. Absolutely, and a lot of times it's,
2: it's retroactive. You're saying, look at all the things that I've done, and here's the value I'm going to provide going
1: forward. I had this conversation with Barbara Corcoran, and she said that in her experience, women usually did think of it retroactively, whereas the men who walked into the office would be like, I'm going to do all of this for you.
2: Fascinating. I I, I think the balance is actually great. I think when you're negotiating, it's important to talk about what you have done, but also what you plan to do in the future. And the the forward-looking value should be all put together into the number.
1: Yes. Okay, so you look back on your career. You have been in so many places in Silicon Valley, in important companies with names that we know, What's been the toughest lesson along the way? I think I was raised by a single mother who worked
2: really hard, and I just assumed all women worked. I just didn't understand that it was unusual for women to have senior roles or be executives. I also worked for Meg Whitman, who was the female CEO of eBay, and I just assumed it was a really natural thing to have a high-powered female around. It didn't strike me as an anomaly in any way. And one of the toughest lessons as I've gone over the last probably 12 years is realizing actually how unusual it is and how women are held to a higher standard than men. And that has been a tough lesson for me to grok and also for me to share with my team and the other people at LinkedIn who experience similar things. We've done an amazing job treating women and men very equally. But there are many meetings where I go to where you hear women being discussed with language around emotional and she seems a little crazy or she seems um, really attached to this where you never hear those things about men. And also women get painted with the, well, she's really defensive, but the guy is, well, he's really assertive. And it's really a true thing. I used to think it was more myth than anything, but I've been part of many conversations and it's super unintentional. No one does it with any bias in their mind. It just is how the world is perceived. And I think that that's been a tough lesson is realizing it's actually a real thing. Because I lived in La La Land for a long time believing it wasn't, but it actually is.
1: So as the most senior person in the room often, how do you address it?
2: I will call it out if I hear it. So I remember being in a talent calibration where you look at all the people who are up for promotion kind of thing. And again, without any malice whatsoever, a lot of the women that were up for promotion got tagged with words that were very female in nature, as I mentioned, emotional, seems really attached to that, seems defensive, seems brash where the men were all definitely assertive, he's really aggressive, he gets stuff done. It's the classic thing that you hear. And I'll call it out. Now, fortunately, I work with an amazing male executive team who said to me, oh, my God, thank you for pointing that out. I didn't realize what I was saying. Now, not every male exec team is going to do that. But mine was very open, and we've been really on a journey to try to change the way that we calibrate men versus women and using the right adjectives and the same adjectives to describe the behavior
1: yes makes a big difference so you were raised by a single mother when you were a kid what did you want to do when you grew up
2: I wanted to be a paleontologist
1: what (laughs) it was one of those words where as a party
2: trick I was like four or five and I had been given a thesaurus by my aunt (laughs) And I looked up paleontologists, and so people would say, oh, what do you want to be when you grow up, little girl? And I would always stun people, because I'd say, a paleontologist. It was like eight syllables or something. So everyone's head would pop off. And then I actually realized I would have to get dirty, and I thought, (laughs) never mind. So for a while, I wanted to be a teacher. And then when I got to Intuit, so I've had five, I've worked at five companies in 24 years. Intuit was... Such a pivotal experience because the person who ran PR at the time is what it was called at Intuit, I used to see her and I would always say, wow, she seems so busy and important. I want to do PR. I didn't really understand what it was, but I just thought this woman seemed really cool and she always got to interrupt meetings and she just really seemed like she had the ear of the CEO and I thought that is a great job for me. That is literally how I decided I should try PR even though I truly did not know what it meant.
1: What's the worst part of PR and what's the best part of PR?
2: I think the worst part is the perception of what it is, where people think you're taking reporters out for drinks when actually it's a really hard job. And one of the things that people don't understand about PR is the story that never runs is actually the hardest one to work on because it gets you you're able to kill it. Yeah. But it never no one knows and it never sees the light of day, which is a great thing for the company. But people don't know all the work that's gone into it. And so people celebrate all the positives, but they don't know sometimes that the biggest things are really the ones that never make it to the screen. The problems.
1: The problems. You have to put out fires.
2: Yeah. So I think it's the perception more than anything.
1: What's the worst advice you've received along the way?
2: I got advice at one point when I was leaving a meeting when I had a four-month-old baby. I got up from the meeting and said, you know, I need to leave. I have to pick up my child. And the next day, a woman on the team came over to me, a more senior woman than me, and said that I didn't need to explain it and to not worry about having to bring up my kids or anything when I was leaving a meeting. And I thought it was the worst advice I ever got because this whole idea of bringing your full self to work, if you have children... They're very much a part of you, and you should be able to say, hey, I'm leaving because my child has a softball game. My child has a doctor's appointment. I really encourage my team to be as honest as possible about whatever is causing them to – Men and women. Men and women, absolutely, to leave a meeting or miss a trip or whatever it is. And I think it's really important that you don't hide parts of yourself that are key to you like your children. So I thought it was – bad advice and I've done the opposite when it comes to explaining where I am and what I'm doing and I encourage my team to do the same.
1: Did you immediately think it was bad advice or did it take time?
2: No, initially I was embarrassed. I thought I had done something wrong by talking about my child and thought, oh, well, that wasn't a very professional, mature thing to do. And then over time I realized that's actually the worst advice I ever got for that exact reason, that people should be encouraged to bring their full selves to work.
1: I think that's changed, too. I don't know. I I feel like when I started, it was, a. I mean, I started in, so 2003, I graduated from college. At that time, it didn't. The world didn't feel as open. Um, it didn't seem like the work world was as open to people's personal lives as it is today. And maybe part of that is because work is so pervasive because we have our phones and everything is 24-7 now. But I even remember, I think it was probably my mom at the time who would say to me, you know, don't talk about boyfriends at work or, you know, the fact that you are you are not in a relationship, just work. Make sure that they see you as their colleague, not sort of the little girl in the office. That advice is actually great. Um,
2: I think there are definitely lines that you don't want to necessarily cross with your colleagues. And I think the millennial generation is a lot less hesitant about doing that. I am sometimes surprised at the stuff that gets discussed at the office. But I do (laughs) think when it's children who are such a key part of you and you do have compromises to your schedule because of them, that it's perfectly okay. And by the way, if you are if you don't have kids and you're a yoga fanatic and you refuse to miss your 5 p.m. yoga class every day because it keeps you sane and healthy and whatever you need, you also need to be able to communicate that. So I always tell people, pick the non-negotiables for you and really stick to them, but be honest about what they are because that allows the people around you to feel more comfortable too. And I know stories about women who used to leave their jacket on their door when they would leave so that people thought they were still there, but really they were at their child's parent-teacher conference.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Now I really encourage people to tell me, oh, I have a parent-teacher conference. I have to miss the meeting. Okay, great. I want people to feel like they can do that.
1: I used to leave my computer screen on if I needed right. to leave so, the office.
2: That's right. The 2003 <laughs> version of the coat exactly. on the door. Yeah.
1: Shannon, thank you so much. This was great.
2: Thank you so much for having me.
1: Oh, and by the way, people can find you on LinkedIn, right? (laughs) They can find
2: me on LinkedIn. I am Shannon Brayton, and I have lots of tips about how to make your profile awesome. Thank you. Thank you.
1: All right. It is the end of the interview, which means it's time for our No Limits Entrepreneur of the Week, where we feature one of you, our amazing listeners, who's building something of your own. And this week's No Limits Entrepreneur is Tracy Trellis. She's the founder and CEO of Trellis Beauty, and she was nominated by listener Melinda Jackson. Here's Tracy to tell you more.
0: Hi, I'm Tracy Trellis, founder and CEO of Trellis Beauty, simply a place to shop clean beauty where we weed out the bad stuff so you can have fun shopping for the good stuff. I'm originally from New Jersey, but I live in Raleigh, North Carolina, and I saw the need for a better shopping experience in the clean beauty space. So I decided to launch the city's very first clean beauty retail boutique. But I didn't stop there because I just launched the country's very first Skin Owl Beauty Steam Bar. I think the one thing as an entrepreneur that I had to overcome was the fear of finances, thinking that I didn't have enough money to start my business. Well, I started Trellis Beauty online with seven brands using the resources and the finances that I had at the time. And now here we are in our first brick and mortar location about to celebrate one year in business. And we are thriving with close to 30 clean beauty brands. So I know if I can get scrappy and figure it out, you can too.
1: Congrats, Tracy. I wish you and Trellis Beauty continued success. Remember, you can head on over to my Instagram at Rebecca Jarvis to hear more from Tracy and how she created her company. And don't forget, if you or someone you know should be featured here on No Limits as the Entrepreneur of the Week, or if you have career questions, send those to me at Podcast at gmail.com. Finally, before the final shout out, just a reminder, if you're still with us and still listening, head on over to the dropout my latest podcast check it out it is the story of elizabeth holmes it is a doozy and if you're listening to no limits already i'm fairly certain you're going to really be into this story so it's called the dropout first episode tomorrow jan 23 but you can find it today the trailer is out Finally, finally, a shout out to our awesome team here that helps make this happen every week. My producer, Taylor Dunn, editor Brittany Martinez, research assistant Lane Wynn, and the ABC radio team, Elizabeth Russo, Josh Cohan, Andrew Kelb, and Steve Jones.
2: Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author.
1: And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer.